Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. John Epperson. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we decided to talk about our development environments. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So I'm curious, just to start out with, do we all run on Macs? Or is that even an assumption that we can make anymore? I don't think it's a fair assumption anymore because you have a lot of people going to Linux or using the Windows or the Linux subsystem on Windows. Yeah. But here, I I think we're using Macs. I primarily use a Mac. I have everything that I need to work on set up on my Windows desktop. I rarely use it, but it is there. And I have seriously considered in the next year or two picking up a Linux machine instead of a Mac. We'll see. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. I run on a MacBook Pro pretty much for everything. In fact, I actually hook it up as my main machine at home when I'm at home, just because then I just take the same machine with the same environments with me. But yeah, I, how do I put it? I'm becoming less and less excited about what's offered on the Mac, if that makes sense. (laughs) I have a first-generation touchpad MacBook Pro. How old is that? It's a couple years old. But unlike my last MacBook Pro, it, I don't feel the same like durability, which is the thing that like I really loved. Yeah. And yeah, I don't know if I'm going to have this one for eight years kind of thing. The issue that I have with the one that I have, it's the 2017? I think it's 2017. October 2017. Yeah, I'm looking mine um, up right now. I could look. Yeah, I probably ought to, and then I can just say it. But it's it was the one where they switched everything over to be the Thunderbolt ports, the USB-C ports. Mm, and okay. that on its own drives me absolutely up the wall. I have dongles for everything. <laughs> yeah. That MacBook wasn't hard Pro, for me. 15 inch 2017. I was already USB-C before. Or I had like a Nexus 6P, I think, at the time, right? Which Uh was USB-C. And so I already had a lot of USB-C stuff. And then all that I had to swap out were cords like uh, USB-C to HDMI and things like that, right? Yeah, and I think think I'd be better off if I had some kind of like USB-C to my monitor and USB-C to my keyboard and things like that. But yeah, it just drives me crazy because ultimately what I wound up doing is getting a couple of docking stations that connect through USB-C. And then I have all the ports that everything runs on anyway. The other issue, though, is that when I actually travel, when I go anywhere, yeah, everything that I have that I want to hook up to my computer has to hook up to a dongle. Because before that, it, it oh. connects other stuff. Other my ports. big problem with USB-C, I think it's awesome, but then you have like five different specifications of USB-C. Yeah. You know, you have the old USB 2.0, USB 3.1 Gen 1, 
and then you have the Gen <laughs> 2, and then you have the Thunderbolt 20 gigabits per second, and then Thunderbolt 40 gigabits per second, all with the same cable. They all look alike. You have no idea which one is which, unless if they actually marked it because they were nice. And so you might be using a external NVMe drive thinking that you're going to get your full 10 gigabits or 20 gigabits per second, but then you're transferring it 40 megabytes per second. So that's yeah. one of my annoyances with it because it's not clear that this configuration is not going to work. And now with Max, you're just kind of like thrown into that world with little to no alternative. The MacBook Pros have four USB-C connections, which are all Thunderbolt 3, I believe. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it's just a mess. I really don't think that they thought through those specifications well. But I do like that we all have a single connection at the same time. Yeah, trade-off city, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah. I was actually going to say that I think you bring up a good point, right? Because you can't tell the difference between cables by sight you also end up in a world where you're going to buy cables off the internet, right, for whatever thing. And, you know, it's really hard to figure out if this is a good, bad cable, if it's going to do what you think it is, if it's going to charge your stuff as fast as it says it is, you know, things like that, right? That's the deal that, and I think Dave kind of made this point, was that everything that I've plugged into my MacBook Pro works, right? I hook up anything to it that has that connector. It'll work, but the point is, is that, yeah, you know, you have something that's set up to run across one of those, I don't know if I want to call it a protocol or that version of USB, and because you're on a different one, yeah, there you go, because you have something that is expecting one specification, it'll fall back to the common specification, but then you don't get all the good features out of it. The other issue I have with Macs these days is that, honestly, I can get a much nicer machine for much less money by going with a Linux machine. I just, yep. I just can. And the other thing is, is then I can turn it around and I can dual boot it to Windows and I can play my video games on Windows and you know they perform better, they act better. They, you know, A lot of them are written for Windows and I can't even run them on my Mac. And so I kind of get the best of both worlds by going with a PC. The only reason that I got this MacBook Pro when I did was because the one I had before died and I needed something that I could just set up and run with in a day and I had backups for my Mac. And so I could just, you know, hook it up to Time Machine and go, okay, I need my machine back and it just did it. Yeah, and I think that's an important point that you make with something like Time Machine. There is a nice spit and polish with Apple that they have conveniences that will help protect your data. Time Machine for me has been a lifesaver over the past few weeks. I've had to restore back because my iMac Pro kind of crapped out on me. So there was little to no data loss there. And I think that it's also important to be able to say, okay, what system am I going to be able to get up and running as quickly as possible on? And that's really less about the hardware, but more about how we actually set up our environment. Right. I mean, it depends, right? So... I do I'm going to use a Hackintosh. <laughs> well, I do a lot of Docker stuff, right? So yeah. hardware matters when you're doing Docker stuff. Yeah, but the interesting thing with Docker, you know, speaking of that, is that Docker runs on Windows and Mac. And Linux, right? And Linux. So yeah. you are 
fairly portable that way, right? Yep. So yeah, and that's kind of what I was going to bring up. So so my sort of trade-off is by living in the Docker ecosystem, right? I get my portability from that rather than from, you know, Max ecosystem. But then I'm I'm more geared towards looking for good hardware that's going to last me a long time, which right. is part of the reason why I am considering buying a Linux machine over the next few years. Kind of see like I feel like Apple's I don't know, I feel like this last refresh was at least an attempt to kind of convince me that yes, their MacBook Pros are going to be solid machines, but I'm not ready to buy yet. So yeah, see. With, with the Mac, Mac updates or the Apple updates, it seems to me that it's kind of hit or miss. So like the two refreshes before this, especially with the Mac Pros, they've really screwed the pooch on that, sorry. But on the MacBook Pros, they tend to do a little bit better. And it seems like they don't quite give you what you, what you want. The, then the next version, they, they get a little closer. And then the next version, they kind of nail it. And then the next version after that, they screw it up again. And so it just kind of follows that cycle. Sure. But, so if you're uh, buying the right version of Apple, then you're great. And if not, then it's not going to be quite what you wanted. Yeah, it, yeah. It's about the confidence that I can buy a machine. When you're trying to make that judgment call, like right then, it's tough to gauge, is this machine going to last me a long time? Well, and the one thing that really has disappointed me with the Apple lineup is their extendability, not being able to upgrade the RAM on a computer. You know, at the time, I might buy a 13-inch MacBook Pro, which will do everything I need it to CPU-wise and graphic-wise. But if I start getting more in-depth in a video editing or with doing anything that requires a lot of memory, so Docker per se, because you have to allocate X amount of RAM mm-hmm. to your Docker instance running, then you can get yourself in a pretty tight corner really quickly. Your only option is to overspec when you buy it, getting something well beyond your means. So that's kind of my issue with it right now. But the iMac 5K does have user upgradable RAM, which is nice. But then with the Mac Pro or the iMac Pro, their you know Pro iMac lineup you can't upgrade the RAM yourself, or at least you shouldn't because there's no easily accessible RAM door. I do miss that. I miss being able to just shove some RAM in. Well, and a lot of times it's not even that they don't have that RAM door anymore. Like in the MacBook Pros, they solder the the RAM in. You have to actually, you know, you have to warm it up, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think anyone in their right mind who is buying the Mac is going to do that. You might have some really like savvy electrical engineering guys who will attempt it, but I, for one's not going to attempt it on my primary machine. Yeah, you, you have to have the right tools to do it. Usually it's actually, they have a solder gun that's air heated instead of, you know, putting hot metal against your <laughs> RAM. And so, you know, you have to have the right equipment. You know, you're going to want to have a grounding cable for your, hand. I mean, it's just, it's way more than, yeah, the normal person's going to have. And I'm kind of an enthusiast and I'm not particularly comfortable doing it. So, yeah. I built my machines for years. That's kind of a thing. That particular thing is where I kind of draw the line. So, I did take apart the iMac Pro to upgrade the RAM on it one time. And it wasn't too bad of a process. You just have to watch a couple of videos and kind of know what you're doing. If you've ever built a computer, it's the same kind of concept. But what really like caught me by surprise and 
why I think that they say don't upgrade it yourself is because the actual power supply, so the large capacitors, the power inverters, the AC to DC conversion was all exposed. And the motherboard or the main board is screwed into the chassis and you have four screws which actually bridge the connection from the motherboard to the actual power supply on there. So if you don't know what you're doing, if you accidentally ground out two of the screws, you could literally shock yourself to death. It's insane. So just some decisions like that for the sake of sleek and slim, I think are really poor trade-offs. I would rather have a computer that's half an inch thicker if you give me the ability to put in my own hardware when I need it. Yeah, I agree. I I really like the uh, upgradability and extensibility. Honestly, it was like 2014 or 2015 when they upgraded the Mac Pro because I have a Mac Pro sitting under my desk, but it's one of those big giant cheese grater ones. It's like a 2013. And that was nice because, you know, it was modular. You could actually, you could replace different hardware components in there. You know, when they put it into the smaller form factor and took that option away, it was, it, it stunk. It was like, okay, well, I can't upgrade this anymore. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board with all that stuff, just being able to do it. And a lot of even the laptops, you know, the Samsung lap, laptops and stuff, there are certain ways that you can upgrade certain components. And in the MacBook Pro, it's increasingly not the case. I think you can still upgrade like the hard drive or, you know, things like that. But yeah, more and more of that stuff's getting harder to upgrade. And it's happening on PCs too, to be fair, but it seems to be happening to a lesser degree. Do we want to talk about the stuff that's on the laptops? (laughs) No, I like complaining. (laughs) Yeah, let, let's talk so, about what, what we're running on the laptops. That's fine. You know, I'll preface this with kind of what I think about my development environment. So I do use Mac OS for my primary OS when developing. And for my environment, I want to keep it stupid simple. If it takes me an entire week to get all my settings up and running the way I want, to get everything restored to the way I want it, then to me, that's not very usable. It's overly complicated. So in a lot of scenarios and times, I'll actually go with whatever default settings that are on the system. So there's a few things I'll tweak, like the scroll mouse. I don't like natural. I like the inverted uh, feel to it. But as far as like VS Code, I limit the number of extensions I run. I do have one extension that'll allow a download from a GitHub gist, which will then install all of my extensions and settings. So something like that is pretty awesome. And I always keep a updated backup of my brew file. So with Homebrew, you can actually create a brew file, which will have a list of all the installed plugins, libraries that you have, as well as all the casks. So to get back up and running, I I really only have to do a few things. And these aren't even scripted things. They're just pretty simple to do. And I think the more we complicate our development environment, just the more difficult it is going to be to uh, repeat on a new system. Yeah, that's fair. 100% in that boat. I like to be portable. I do it differently because I primarily do my stuff through Docker. I think I have like eight things installed in Brew. Not very many at all like the bare minimum things. And I think I added like three this past week because of a specific project that I brought in from the outside. But 
typically I don't have very many things in brew. Almost everything is dockerized for me. And that lets me set up pretty easily. I've used Sublime Text for a long time, mainly because at the time when I started, uh, I was using IDEs on Windows. So I, I used to do Ruby Rails development on Windows back in the day. And there was, uh, I can't remember what the original Rails thing plugin was. It was like an Eclipse thing, whatever. But I'd used Eclipse for a long time. Then we tried NetBeans and I was like really tired of IDEs. So I used Notepad++ for like a year and somebody was like, nice. try the Sublime thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. I tried Sublime and I've been using it ever since. But it's more or less the same thing to me as VS Code. I just use it as a uh, kind of a text editor plus, right? Yeah. It's funny yeah. because when I started, I was using, I think it was NetBeans. And it was just because that's what we were using at the company I was working at. And then when I moved on, I started using, I, try, I tried to teach myself Vim. I knew I used Vim for a while. And then I got a contract where, I was, where Emacs was mandated. And I really got into Emacs and really, really loved it. But what I find is that maintaining all the, the .emacs files and stuff like that, I mean, you can go and they have a package manager for it that you run through the text editor and you can get a lot of functionality out of Emacs. but the setup and maintenance of it just turned out to be a pain. And so I've since then moved on to Visual Studio Code. And I've, I've got the Emacs key bindings in there. I've got a handful of other you know things in there depending on what I'm working on at the time. So I'll install plugins for React Native or Vue.js or Rails or whatever I'm working on and make that work. But yeah, that's kind of been the nice balance for me is using something like VS Code and then just, yeah, grabbing the plugins that do what I want. You know, to kind of John's way of setting things up, I'm not a huge Docker fan, but I do see more and more of its value as a development environment because you can just create mounts to your local hard drive for your project folders and then just, you know, go off running with Docker. You don't have to worry about dependencies or anything like that. Just get Docker set up and, you know, start developing. You know, my current way, I still have a few legacy apps that I haven't Dockerized. So I still have RVM with Ruby installed on my primary host, but I'm really considering switching things over to Docker. Because not only is that going to make life a little bit easier, but if I push up my completed images to a registry, then deployment's not only going to be super fast, it's going to be consistent. It's going to also be easy to do. That's so a really that... interesting thing. So I have something like 30, 40 legacy apps. I don't know. It fills up my whole, the left side of my sublime screen, right? With just like legacy apps from various things. I'm only like <laughs> actively working on like 10 of them at a time, right? But every single one of them is now Dockerized because it helps me. I don't know if you have this problem, Dave, but let's say you haven't been working on legacy app A for like six months, right? And you like come back to it. I find that there's always some weird thing or I have to like brew, if it's a MySQL thing, I have to like brew, turn off one version of MySQL, turn on a different one and then keep that, that whole setup like alive. And I've just always hated that. And so I started dockerizing them and I was like, this is amazing. I don't touch anything for six months. 
I come back, I turn off my other Docker containers, you know, maybe because, for example, some of these are some of the first Docker things that I've ever done. So they're not as customizable, you know, things like that. So I turn off my other Docker containers, turn those on, and boom, I'm working already. And for me, that's been amazing. Yeah, I need to look at that some more because I've got a couple of old apps. I didn't run into it with the Postgres or MySQL version issue because I've been using the Postgres app and you can just run, you know, two, three, four different versions of Postgres at the same time. The issue that I ran into was the Ruby version. And then I would have like Bundler 2 installed and that app had been using Bundler (laughs) 1. So it automatically upgrades the bundle. And then when I go to deploy the deployment, you know, the bundler uh, executable is global. And so it doesn't ship with everything else. And so when I, you know, when I go and tell it to, you know, do tasks with bundle exec or anything on the server, then it would crap out or it would say, you made these upgrades and it's no longer compatible with Ruby version 2. Point whatever, you know, that's not the 2.5 or 2.6 or 2.7. <laughs> and so, yeah, that, that turned into a headache. I need to look at Docker again as an option. But yeah, I found that Docker is easier to deal with than I thought it was, but it's still not trivial to set up on a project. I think your first like couple of Docker Compose YAMLs are, you're just in over your head and you're drowning a little bit still. Um, yeah. Yeah, especially if you've got like microservices and stuff. If it's just one monolithic app, it's a little easier because you just put all the dependencies on the machine and, and fire it off. But yep. yeah. It, it is a large learning curve. I was also going to throw this out there. I specifically was calling out MySQL because I feel like Postgres is way more polished at this point. Yes. Well, uh, people fo- forked MySQL. I think that might have as much to do with Oracle as it does with the maintenance curve for MySQL. But a lot of people who have been using MySQL for a long time have gone over to MariaDB because it right. solves some of those issues that are just no fun in... MySQL, and there's no reason that you should have to deal with them anymore. Somebody's going to beat me up over this, but I actually, basically, somebody's like, we're using MariaDB, and I'm like, sweet, you're using MySQL. Okay. I yeah, basically, kind of no, it's together. True. <laughs> Even That's though totally fair. They're diverged enough at this point. I should be giving them more credit. Yeah, but I mean, they have API parity. It's just MariaDB is more reliable, I found, and more performant. What screwed me up initially when I was starting out, I had the option of really investing in MySQL or Postgres. And so I thought, you know, okay, all the cool kids are using Postgres. You know, I'll check it out and see how I like it. And the one thing that really just put a bad taste in my mouth was not being able to do a case-insensitive search easily. So if I want to find a user by their email address and if they had mixed cases, it wouldn't find the email. So... There's definitely ways around that and a lot of ways now, but initially back in 2010 or 2012, that really wasn't so much the case. The documentation stuff just wasn't really out there or is easily findable. The one library or extension that really kind of hung me up on older projects to answer your question, John, was libv8. The stupid mm. JavaScript thing always, yep. if I leave a project alone for two or more months, libv8 is going to come back and bite me. Yep, so, and you have to fix it with brew magic. Either that or do a bundle update on your mini racer, whichever engine, Jim, you're using and just you know pray hope that it's going to work. 
Yeah, and then you're yeah. and then you're busy putting in like uh, Git config things, and and now you're just crying. Yeah, generally though, when I'm setting up Rails projects anymore, I just have to make sure I have Node eight or higher installed, and that solves that issue for me. So I'm not dealing with the lib v eight stuff anymore. I just updated Node to twelve, thinking that that was going to help me on one thing, and that was stupid. I discovered I had to <laughs> downgrade it to ten. In order to get like things, oh my gosh, this is why I hate Brew, and this is why I love Docker. Is it? I just plug in the dependency that I yeah. want into that Docker container, and every time I come back to the thing, whatever it was, it's not. It's working. Do you run your tests and everything in Docker? Then I do. It's a little slower. I'm. I mean, you're. It's a trade-off, right? You mm. are losing a little bit of immediate speed. And and for me, like being able to switch between all these projects, right? That's the speed that matters the most for me. So, but are you really losing that much speed? Because Docker originally was based on LXE Linux containers, and there's a three percent overhead from bare metal performance right. versus uh, LXE performance. So I would imagine that Docker would be a similar overhead. And so, I think 3% really isn't user noticeable. So also, do remember that because we're on Macs, we are actually virtualizing. Yeah, you're yeah. running it on a VM. Yeah. So there's a little more overhead there. And same with Windows, because it's also virtualizing. But yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. Like It's not like a 15 to 20% decrease, right? It's like somewhere between like 5 and 10. Yeah. It's not crazy. It is real. I think people that have Docker containers that do a lot of disk access, that can be an issue. Or if you have tons and tons and tons of files in a folder, now you have file handler problems potentially, you know, things like that. You know, at the edges, there are some performance issues. For the most part, most of my projects don't run into it at all. And there are tools to deal with a few of my projects that do. Yeah, one thing that I ran into is, and this goes back to, you know, complaints about Macs, is that I think I have a 128 gig hard drive. And when it pulls down Docker images or sets them up and stuff, it takes up disk space. And that's been an issue for me with some of the stuff that I've done playing with Docker. That said, though, most of my processes, like with testing and things like that, you know, if I'm running tests, I usually have them running in the background and I have something set up to yell at me if something's wrong. So whether, if, if the test takes an extra couple seconds to run, that's not a big deal for me, as long as I can get those notifications out of Docker. And then as far as you know, running the server on a Docker container versus running the server just on the command line, I don't really have a major issue with that either because I just tell it to run. It's going to have to do whatever setup it does anyway. And then as long as it's responsive, I'm, I'm fine, right? As long as I send it a request and I get a request or a response back, I'm okay. And it doesn't take too long. So, Yeah, my Docker effort days, I used some scripts, just some bash scripts, which would make life a little bit easier. So I called it pod. So I would just run pod at the command line. It gave me a menu option that I can see all of the running containers. And then it would allow me to then SSH into those so it was just really quick and easy to navigate through them. And then also had some commands to clean up container images that were currently mm-hmm. unused, not running. So it made working with Docker a little bit nicer. 
Uh, Andrew sense. Mason actually introduced me to Lazy Docker, which is just a nice kind of tool for viewing a lot of that stuff. And that just like kind of helps you to visually be like, oh, I have a ridiculous amount of, you know, images or something like hanging out. But to be honest, uh, just like you have to have Git hygiene, just like you have to have, you know, hygiene for anything you do in development, you kind of have to come up with some sort of, you know, sane Docker hygiene for yourself too. clean your stuff out regularly. You can't just leave all your Legos lying on the floor. Someone's going to step on them, right? Same thing. I don't want to worry about it. <laughs> it it's, I'm it's just about, being honest. <laughs> I mean, okay. I guess what I mean is like, you can't just create Git branches willy nilly and then be pissed off later when your Git repo is a gigantic mess, right? You have to have some sort of organization for yourself. And that's kind of what I mean here is you have to be sort of organized with, I think, any tool for the most part. You should just know what I want. All right. Well, um, <laughs> when we get those Star Trek computers and you can just be like, computer, create this magical world for me and do all the work involved in it. And like, boom, it happens. Oh, if only. <laughs> Alexa. <laughs> Alexa, make me a sandwich. Yeah, so I'm going to be looking at Docker a little bit more to switch over some older applications because I really think that being able to quickly get up and running on a project is the most important thing. You know, playing around with my development environment's fun, but it's not productive. Right. Yeah, that's the main issue that I think we're kind of aiming at here and talking our way around is that, yeah, it's okay. Well, how much how much time am I spending maintaining my environment versus just you know, getting the work done. And yeah, there's, like John said, there's some cost to running Docker in the moment, but does it add up to the hour that you're going to spend fiddling with your setup in the first place? Or, you know, am I going to spend two hours less setting up Docker? And then, you know, in the long run, I may lose minutes, but I save two hours up front. And so overall, I'm more able to get more work done. I think the other thing that like comes into play is I don't think you're losing minutes, right? I don't think you're losing that five, let's call it 5%, right? Of Docker right. overhead, right? I don't think you're losing that 5% all the time because you're not, you're, you're not really, okay, I make a request to my, yeah, you know, in my development environment, a request to my Ruby server, right? And it comes back 5% slower. I'm not constantly making requests, right? That's no, I agree. occasional thing or running my tests 5% slower. That's a, that's a thing running in the background kind of asynchronously from me thinking about my problem, right? Those things aren't really costing you like 5% total of your time either. But if you are trying, somebody calls you up one day and they're like, hey, I need you to change some feature on some old legacy project. And then it takes you a half day to like get your environment set up because of some weird problem because sometime in between the last time that you messed yeah. with it, Mac upgraded and now everything's broken and you have to do a bunch of brew magic and get config stuff and in order <laughs> to figure out how to get it going, you've lost half a day of productivity immediately on that thing. Yeah, that, that I agree with. So besides Docker or, I mean, I've been using a lot of RVM to manage my Ruby versions, but that's, ha that's a hassle too. I think Docker is less hassle. I mean, what else are we we using here in our setups? Are we I do all use RBM? RBM. Um, I'll be the odd one out. I mean, I don't think anybody. I, I know that I have run into people who are using whatever the C one is, C Ruby or something. The old 
Yeah, um, or ASDF. Yeah. I mean, yeah, ASDF but, does different versions of all, a bunch of different languages. Yeah, yeah, I think RBM and RVM are the two most popular, though. Yeah. As far as Ruby version manager goes, I don't think it really matters what you use. I personally use RVM, and all of the issues that everyone has ever complained about it, I've just I've never experienced. You know, usually it was some other stupid decision I've made which caused it to, you know, crash my system, but it wasn't RVM. Yeah. This episode is sponsored by Cloud66. I have a Rails application and I was looking for a flexible product that takes care of deployment and gives full control of my application so I can focus on developing my code. I came across Cloud66 for Rails, which deploys your Rails application onto any cloud or server. At first, I thought it's like Capistrano, but then I realized it's way more than just deployment and gets you to scale servers, replicate and backup databases, protect your servers with firewalls, and much more. It acts as your in-house DevOps team to build, deploy, and maintain your Rails applications. It's really developer-friendly, and no wonder that companies like Bearmetrics, Glossies, CareerBuilder, Discovery Channel, and many development agencies and I are using Cloud66. You can try Cloud66 Rails for free and get $100 free credits with the code rubyrogues-19. That's rubyrogues-19 at cloud66.com. Well, the complaints that I ever heard about RVM were basically people didn't like the way that it managed certain aspects of the of Bash or whatever command line you're using, the way it interacted. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but it gets the job done. So I'm not going <laughs> to, you know, I'm not a purist. I just want the results. So I'll be totally honest. A lot of my motivation for using RBM is DevOps related because yeah. I've done a lot of that work over the years. And I, I'm not saying that you can't get RVM to work. That's certainly not the case. Um, because you can, but I found that I liked uh, kind of the architecture when everything was put together, right? When I was using RBM over when I was using RVM. I felt like I was doing more hoops to get RVM to work and it's not going to kill you. It works. I know that people can get it done. I've seen plenty of setups where it works, right? And I've even made some, but I just happened to like it better. And so I stuck with it. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, whatever reasons, you know, I mean, ultimately for me, I just want people to be happy and be able to get their work done. So I made the decision like six years ago. I kind of don't even remember why it was painful yeah. anymore. So testing libraries, is everybody here using RSpec or test unit or what is it now? Not test unit. Mini it's test. Mini test. Yeah. Well, underneath it's something else. But yeah, I know what you're saying. The thing that you get yeah. straight out of Rails. Yeah, straight out of Rails. So. I'm a huge fan of RSpec, but other than old projects, I don't use it anymore. I use Minitest or the Rails built-in. Somebody else make the decision for you? Uh, no. I say no, but what I mean is that I've been burned by RSpec when upgrading to edge versions of Rails, like betas or release candidates mm. or even new stables, and it's a development dependency. So it's for my testing. It has zero benefit to my actual production code other than running the tests. So it should not prevent me from deploying an application to production. But if I update my RubyGems to a new version of Rails, it could break. So what I found myself doing was using it less and less on newer projects because it is only a developer preference. Our spec is not giving me fundamentally any direct advantage over mini test or what's baked into Rails. It's just a preference in my opinion. 
That's fair. Do you do a lot of Edge Rails stuff then? I have three projects that I'm maintaining that are on the latest 6.0.2.1 version of Rails. Okay. I do not. I've never done that. Um, I've had a couple projects now in many tests. I am now convinced that my love of RSpec is, is genuine. Because <laughs> I just wanted to go... Like, I tried really hard to like give it like that honest go for like two years and I learned everything I could. And I was like, you know, in the end, I'm doing just as much work as I'm doing in RSpec to write this. Like, I'm not actually reducing my workload, I don't think. I am losing readability is what I felt like. And yeah, at the end of the day, I was like, I'm working just as hard and I'm losing readability. I don't, I don't like this. That's what I, I felt how, like. I love how it's a measure of where your pain is, right? So John's pain is readability and you know speed of development. And Dave's pain was, I've tried to deploy this and RSpec was a problem and it shouldn't have been. Yeah. I think that's perfectly so, valid. I think that as far as a application, a Ruby on Rails application maintainability, I would consider a application not, and I say take it with a grain of salt, please, because there's so many other factors. But in my gem file, I should not have it locked down to any version, any of the gems locked down to any version, except for very specific ones, like maybe Rails or any of the direct Rails dependencies, which they have deemed to be locked down. And I should be able to just run a bundle update, make whatever kind of configuration file changes. So if there were some new things added in a new Rails version, update those, run my tests, and then deploy. If you can do that on your Rails application, then I would say you have a potentially well-maintainable application. But if you're having to fight your gem files over and over with different versions conflicting and that kind of stuff, then I think that you perhaps maybe have added one too many gems. Man, I, uh, I've worked on large legacy projects my entire career. And uh, I have one rule, which is that like every single gem in your gem file should be locked down solid. <laughs> <laughs> because when you have a like I'm talking like hundreds of models big, right? When you have these large legacy apps, you just have big gem files because that's kind of what you've done. You're you're touching a lot of stuff, you know, ERP pr programs and things that touch like every part of a business, right? Mm -hmm. You have all sorts of things that I mean, let's be fair. These are monolithic applications. These are what make the name what it is, right? There's a lot of interests and there's a lot of conflicts. So do you, do you use the squiggle operator or when you say lockdown or do you just tell it what version and then if you decide to upgrade, you... Squiggle is okay, right? Because theoretically, squiggle means that you are compatible. Only, yeah, only doing patch level, right? Yeah. So I have been burned by the squiggle before where I got a patch level and it broke stuff. But most of the time, you're, it's fine. And by most, I think it's happened like once or twice. Yeah, over like 10 years, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's fine. So what I would say in your defense, Dave, is that when I start off on newer projects, I break my rule until my gem file starts to get, like until my project is big enough that it's a problem, right? But I've always kind of come in after a legacy project has kind of started. And I've always been there when they're going through some sort of growing pains of some kind. 
And eventually one of the decisions that gets made is to let's go through all of these things that like keep giving us problem and grief and let's just remove it right by locking it down. Yep. Yeah. I use the pessimized gem almost from the go. And that way it just locks everything down to start with. And then I don't even have to fuss with it after that. So another reason for my gem hatred, if you will, is I've been through two different acquisitions with the same job. So same job over the past 10 years with three different employers. And during each acquisition, I had to spend the time on every project that I had written for the company, go through and list out every gym that was being used, every library, get the license, and write up a document use case for each one and if there's any agreements in place for those gyms. So it's a huge pain. No, so that's more the business ops side of things. Yeah. A reason not to use gyms. But, you know, if you're a small one man shop or a very small company, then it's probably less of a deal. But for me in the past, it has been an annoyance. Yeah. I think the things that you do in enterprise rails, right? Versus the things that you do when, you're just like launching an application at the very beginning. There are, they are slightly different habits, right? Absolutely. Yep. But, you know, that's to say there's so much red tape in the corporations, which I think a lot of them are just not needed in certain situations. But on the other hand, having some red tape around is a good thing. You know, not giving developers console access to your production environment. (laughs) That just relieves a huge liability off the company. And that's not a bad thing. You know, having a person or team of people that manages that stuff, it's good. Because that way, when I accidentally do a schema dump uh, or truncate, and I didn't mean to, then... I'm not the primary developer on the product and the DevOps person, and now I'm getting fired due to negligence. I love that you casually are truncating here. (laughs) (laughs) That has never, ever happened. Well, we should create a tech band called Casually Truncating. (laughs) (laughs) I can't think of anything necessarily more. I, I definitely, okay, let me actually go back to what you just said, Dave, because I do have a comment on that. I also am a big believer that your entire dev team does not need console access to your production environment. If that is sort of a requirement of how you work, I think that you kind of have, you have process problems, right? You have something going on where if your developers need to log in every day to fix problems in the console in production, like that's scary. And that always has been to me. And I have worked somewhere where that was the case. Well, Tell you, sorry, I won't name the company because, you know, PR junk, but there was a company whom I've never worked for, but they had a developer who needed, quote, needed production access so much that they just kept a openly live VPN tunnel into the production environment so they could quickly and easily access it from their local development machine. Hmm. Well, well, that couldn't ransom- go wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> ransomware hit one of the support person's computers. It went all around their local network, found its way through this tunnel, and started encrypting their production servers. 
Oh no! Took them months <laughs> to get everything back. Laugh. Yeah. Oh my so, god! But you can't help uh, it because because you saw it coming. <laughs> you know, there's always a trade-off for easeability and ease of use versus security. And if you don't pick the happy medium, then you're going to have a bad time one day. Sure. Yeah. I just mean if if you're logging in every day to your production Rails console and you're changing data, you know, not through your apps API, right? Your your apps mm-hmm. views and however you normally do it, right? You you just are changing stuff in a way that's gonna surprise you, right? And then you're doing work tomorrow to fix the work you did yesterday. Yep. Yeah. Especially if it's a recurring task. If you always find that you have to do something, well, just write a rake task for that. And then if you have a admin UI section, you have a little dashboard that has a button which will execute that task if you know it's a non-volatile task. Yep. The company have that proper I proper log management. Specifically thinking about I always felt like they were modifying data today, you know, modifying it tomorrow to fix what they did today and the day after to fix what they did tomorrow. And that was just a constant piece of work that was always going on. And that is what it is. Don't do it. Anything else we should talk about? I think every developer needs loud keyboards with mechanical key switches. I have one of those. I, I would love one. I tell you, I love mechanical keyboards. That's what I first started typing on. But because all the screen casting I do on Drift and Ruby, I don't want that super loud, like, all over the place. Yeah, I've worked with developers that had... So mine has mechanical key switches. I don't remember what... They're, they're the cherry key switches. They're, I don't remember what color. But they're the less loud ones. Because I don't mind if it picks it up a little bit when I'm doing recording video. I don't like it when I'm recording audio because you just hear random, you know key tapping but so type something right now on your keys yep okay can hear it that's that's not too bad that's not bad but i've worked with other developers in the same office and they had to have like the specific color cherry key key switch and man you couldn't hear you can hear yourself think across the room (laughs) i have one of the loud ones because i picked up because the first mechanical keyboard that I bought a couple of years ago when my buddy was like, you need one, you need one. I was like, all right, I'll try it. What just was on sale and it yeah. had the really loud ones. And uh, I still use it, but I regret yeah. that it's so loud. Yeah, I like the feel of it, but I wish it were quieter. And I don't like it so much that I wouldn't just go back to one that has the regular key switches in it. I do have one that's softer, but it's not as... It's not as cool of a keyboard, so yeah. I don't use it as much. Yep. It's on a different computer. But yeah, I was just being trying to be funny. I don't know that there's really anything else that we should be talking about. Oh, monitors? We oh, should yeah. probably at least yeah. discuss dual versus single. So my setup right now, I have four monitors. Slightly jealous, but uh, <laughs> I actually switched to only using one monitor. I had a buddy that we started working at a company together and they like gave us like this really big monitor and he just brought in his laptop and never used his monitor. And I was like, dude, I was using dual monitors at home at the time. I was like, dude, I really wish I had more monitors. Like, why are you only using your laptop? 
And he was like, well, because if I go to the coffee shop, like, he's like, then I suddenly feel unproductive because like I can't do anything. So he's like, I only use my laptop and don't use anything else. And I was like, that's weird. And then like two years later, I was doing it. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Because he's, in my opinion, he was right. If I go to the coffee shop and I'm using like two monitors or huge monitors at home, I suddenly feel like less productive. And, and now, now I'm not. Now, because I only use my laptop monitor for working, I'm used to it. Yeah, I don't get that at all, really, even when I'm traveling. The main thing that I do, so I have one monitor that is rotated 90 degrees. So it's, you know, it's kind of upright. And I've got basically Discord for my team chat on there. And then I've got my calendar on it. In other words, I don't move those windows hardly at all. And then the other monitors, if there's something that I'm kind of monitoring or watching, then I'll throw it up on the other monitor on the other side. And then the two in front of me are the ones that I generally do most of my work on. And I do enough work where I'm working through a list on one monitor and doing the work on the other monitor. That's generally why I like having those. And if I'm at the coffee shop or whatever, or on the road in the hotel room, then I don't really feel like I'm less productive. Sometimes I do a little bit, but mostly it's just because I have to switch back and forth between windows, whereas at home I don't have to. But generally, I try and do other kinds of work where I only need one machine. So I'll answer emails on the road or things like that, that you know I can just do in one window and I don't have to fiddle with the rest of it. And so I don't feel like I lose that much productivity when I'm traveling because I'm choosing tasks that are better suited to the situation I'm in. So back in the day, I was using five monitors, which I have no excuse for it. Um, <laughs> so I just sent you guys an image of it. It was back before like Windows 8 was even around. So it was a while ago. But they were 1080p monitors. So I wasn't getting a lot of real estate. Now, one of my monitors basically makes up for all those five. Right now, and it's kind of a buyer's remorse, like a love-hate thing too. But I have two LG 5K monitors, the 5K Ultrafines. Mm -hmm. And as a display, they are freaking amazing. They are beautiful. And... I don't have any eye strain anymore while working. Before, I had some old TN 4K monitors and my eyes would get sore just trying to focus on the text. But these are truly beautiful. But the problem with them is a stupid freaking USB. So here we are, circle back all the way to the beginning of our talk. is a stupid USB. They're Thunderbolt monitors and I have only been able to get them to run on a Thunderbolt device. So if I want to plug in a Windows computer to these monitors, I kind of cannot do it. I've even tried various different display port that are Thunderbolt capable uh, USB-C adapters and cables and nothing worked with them. So I hate them from that perspective, but I love them from a quality visual perspective. Interesting. Talk it's funny because I went and looked it up on Amazon, that, that particular model, and it says often sold with, and it has a USB-C to USB adapter, Thunderbolt 3 to USB 3 adapter. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah back, so back to that other has... idea. It's adding that chipset to it that it needs for Thunderbolt or whatever. Yeah, which it's crazy. Or so. dumbing it down the other way. As a Ruby developer, you've probably used Redis for queuing and caching. But if you're like me, you've never completely understood it. 
You just followed the tutorial to set it up and then hoped it'd stay up. Now that I'm building my own services for other people, I realize that you and I often don't have the desire or time to run an ops or DevOps team or do it yourself. Plus, since you're not a Redis expert, you're not exactly sure how to know what it's doing. That's why I love Redis Green. No setup. It runs on any AWS region I want, so I can run it near me. And the tooling is amazing. I have to tell you about this feature, actually. It actually maps the memory you're using and tells you where all the memory is allocated. So this makes it really easy to see what's going on in your Redis setup. It also runs on AWS, so it scales easily and can alert you when it hits certain thresholds in performance or capacity. Sorry for going all fanboy on you, but I love this tool. Here's the thing. If you don't want to do ops or are already on Heroku or something, then use Redis Green for the rest. It's simple yet powerful. Check them out at redisgreen.net. Should we do some picks? Do it. All right. Dave, do you want to start us with picks? Yeah, so uh, no technology picks today, just more power tools because they're awesome. So my my kids, I was working on a project over this Christmas holiday and I had this tape measure that I love. But for some reason, I either misplaced it or more likely my kids are hiding it from me. But I kind of needed the tape measure to do the project. So I coughed up the money when I got another one and DeWalt had this, you know, free add-on included. And you can buy this thing separately, but it's a pocket laser distance measure up to 40 feet. That thing is so cool. It doubles as a laser pointer. So if I wanted to like point at something, even though I just really use it to point at the kids. Um, <laughs> but it, it's surprisingly accurate and really neat. So that is a DW040HD and then my second pick is part of the project I was working on, uh, melamine boards. So if you have a closet and if you want to just spruce it up, build some nice custom shelves, then melamine boards from Home Depot are a super easy way to do it. They sell them with the drill holes already there for shelving. And all you need to do is just slap two boards up on each side of your wall, put the boards in, and now you have some nice custom shelving. Did, nice. Did Home Depot pay you for that? Because that sounded like a commercial almost. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've just spent the past week and a half with melamine boards. Nice. John, do you have some picks for us? I do. So we were talking about cables earlier, and it kind of reminded me that uh, I'm a huge fan of Monoprice. I don't know why they're still like in business or whatever, but I've always bought, I've always like, bought cables from Amazon and random places and I would never be happy with them. And then I'd be like, oh, I need to go back to Monoprice, buy their, you know, stuff. And I buy it and I my house is littered with their cables because those are the ones that I end up keeping, right? So I was gonna throw that out there for a cable you know, when you're just having trouble and like you're buying cables for your stuff and you're like, oh man, this cable is not charging my phone fast enough. You know, I just bought the cheap one off of Amazon like I don't know. Monoprice has just always freaking worked. And then for my scotch pick, um, I pulled, I got this one over the holidays. I'm a really big fan of, there's a, there's a thing called Abelor Abenod, which is basically a cask strength um, whiskey. And I was, it's now super expensive. It used to cost me like 60 bucks to get. Now it's like in the $120 range. So clearly I'm really upset when I go because my expectations are wrong. And uh, some guy in the in the liquor store 
that gives you advice on scotch was like, why don't you try this Glenguan cast strength? He's like, it's a lot like it. And he was wrong. But it's really good for a completely different reason. It is a cast strength. So if you're like kind of into like rye whiskeys and stuff, which seem to be really popular right now, um, the cast strength is kind of in vogue or whatever. It does have that kind of taste going on, but it's it's a very different thing. It's it's a sweeter one. It doesn't have a lot of the burn that a lot of cast strength does. And you could you can tell it's cast strength, but this one's different. It's it's really good. I enjoyed it, and it was only sixty bucks instead of the hundred and twenty. I'm still probably going to have to get myself some of the Avenat, but yep, that's that's my Scotch pick. All right, I've got a couple of picks. So I've been doing a hundred days of view is the the challenge that I kind of made up for Vue developers. One of the things is spending an hour just writing Vue code that you don't have to write. I've really been uh, enjoying that. But one of the things that I've run into with it is uh, I, I've been doing some screen... What is it? Screencasting, but it's uh, streaming. And I've been using OBS for that. And I've really, really been... Uh, really been digging that. It's been awesome. And then... Um, I'm trying to think because I had another pick and I was going to make sure I picked it. Oh, the so one of the other picks is a TV pick on Amazon Prime. They have a series and I think it's wrapping up now. I just barely got into it. So I'm like 10 episodes in, but I'm really enjoying it. It's The Man in the High Castle and it takes place in the 60s and it's essentially takes place after the Nazis in Japan won World War II. Anyway, so there are these films that are going around that... Japan and Germany are trying to keep quiet. You know, they tend to bring and inspire people to fight back. And you get these people that get involved in the resistance and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, just just great stuff. So like I said, I'm about 10 episodes in um, and I'm really, really enjoying it. I kind of enjoy the historical aspect and it feels like they've thought through a lot of what was likely to happen, you know, to lead up to... Um, you know, this time period and then to place people in it. So I'm going to pick that. And I guess that's all we've got. So we'll go ahead and wrap up. And in the meantime, Max out. All right. Talk to y'all later. Awesome. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more. <laughs>